Good morning. If you got your Bibles there, <laughs> it's open to Daniel chapter 11. Last week we looked at Daniel chapter 10, which is the introduction to Daniel chapter 11. And it was an amazing thing where Daniel's praying and 21 days it took for the angel to get to Daniel. But now we come to the actual message that the angel is going to give Daniel. It's quite incredible. So it's a bird's eye view, like prophetically for Daniel, but historically for us, the first 35 verses. And in the first 35 verses, there's 135, scholars have counted 135 specific prophecies, all fulfilled to the most minute detail. Now, because of all these prophecies in this very kind of short passage of Scripture, I'm not going to go through every single one and explain every single story behind it because we're here for weeks. And by the time we got to the end, you've forgotten it all anyway. So I'm just going to do like a summary of it all, the very specific prophecies regarding the nations of the Medes and Persians and the Grecian Empire. So the outline of the last three chapters of Daniel, chapters 10, 11, and 12, was chapter 10 was the introduction to the fourth and final vision. So there's, in Daniel, there's four visions. And chapters 11 and 12 are part of the same vision. So we're going to split it up into two or three weeks to go through the vision. And the first 35 verses in chapter 11 is about world history up to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, about 164 B.C. And starting with Darius and Medan, 539 BC. So it covers a period of about 375 years. And then, after verse 35, you go to verse 36. So you go right to the end. So you go from a period of time within Daniel's 69 weeks, the first 69 weeks, and then verse 36, it suddenly skips to the last week, Daniel's 70th week. And it deals with a Gentile ruler who we know as the Antichrist who will be in power when Christ comes in his second coming. And we'll tackle that next week. And then in chapter 12, there's further prophecy of the last 1,335 days. And this starts at the halfway point of the Great Tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period. And it includes the second coming of Jesus and the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. So, probably no other portion of Scripture presents more detailed, specific, and accurate prophecy than Daniel 11, 1-35, and therefore it's been attacked a lot. And I've got a quote here. Interestingly enough, it was the 11th chapter of Daniel with its detailed prophecy of about 200 years of history that prompted the heathen philosopher Porphyry, he's lived in the 3rd century AD, to attack the book of Daniel as a forgery. In his study, Porphyry established the fact that history corresponded closely to the prophetic revelation of Daniel 11, 1-35. And the correspondence was so precise that he was persuaded that no one could have prophesied these events in the future. Pretty amazing, eh? So the enemies of the gospel look at this and they examine all the facts in detail and they say, everything's perfect. So, what did he do? He solved the problem by taking the position 
that the book of Daniel was written after the events occurred in the second century BC. So because he's not a believer, he could not believe that God could have revealed this to someone. And so the only thing, the only comeback he had was, oh, it has to be a forgery. It had to be someone recording history after it had happened. But it's not. We know that it's not. And we've been through some of those evidences before. But even without Daniel 11, the whole Bible is full of detailed and specific prophecies. I mean, consider the first coming of Jesus, 332 prophecies regarding the first coming of Jesus, and all fulfilled perfectly. And other examples, you've got the conquest of Babylon by the Medes and Persians as a result of the drying up of the Euphrates River. We've covered that fairly recently too. That's covered in Jeremiah 50 and 51, and the list goes on and on. So this just goes to prove two things. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, because it's God-breathed, it's given by inspiration of God. And prophecy proves that had to come from outside of time. Even the enemies of the gospel would admit that, that no man could have written that down on his own, using his own wisdom. And the other thing it proves is Isaiah 46 verse 10. It says, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That's the New King James Version. And the NLT, New Living Translation, says, Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. So God is in control. And this prophecy should give us a lot of confidence in what the Bible says. So prophecy is a powerful evidence that the Bible has its origins <laughs> beyond time and space. Its ultimate author is God. Now, what are the other evidences for God? Just as a bit of background, the maps. So you got M-A-P-S, M for manuscripts, the manuscript evidence, which shows that the writings of the Bible have not been changed in any significant way since they were first written. Archaeology, it shows the historical evidence that supports the truth and accuracy of what's in the Bible and the history of the Bible, the people, places, and events. We then have prophecy, P for prophecy, God writing history, and history is his story, remember that, in advance. And then science, and observational science never contradicts the Bible. And so we have, you know, biology, geology, dinosaurs, astronomy, young earth, all those things. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into this amazing piece of scripture. Father, thank you that you are such an awesome God. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal these things, to demonstrate your omnipotence and you being everywhere at once. And we just thank you, Lord, we're just humbled before you because we know nothing compared to you. Help us to understand that and help us to learn from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm just going to read up to verse 35. And it's going to be basically a summary of the history of the Mede and Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire up to Antiochus Epiphanes. So, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And that's the end of chapter 10. So, this section here starts in verse 2. 
And now I will tell you the truth. Now here's the vision. Here's the answer. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion. That's Alexander the Great. And do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others beside these. Now, just a brief word of explanation. When you hear the south and the north, the kings of the north are located in Syria. It's The Grecian Empire was broken into four empires, if you want it, or kingdoms. The one part went south to Egypt, that's the southern kingdom, and the other one was, one of the others was north of that, in around Syria, and guess who's in the middle? Israel. Okay, so Syria is north of Israel, Egypt is south of Israel, and these kings were fighting each other, and so Israel was the meat in the sandwich. They were getting trampled. So just keep that in mind as we go through. Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now I think I might actually not read the whole thing. I'll just go through bit by bit. So this is basically going through what we already know from chapter 2, the statue, the head of gold, and the lion and eagle in chapter 7, Babylon. The chest and arms of silver in chapter 2, and the bear in chapter 7, both represent the Medes and Persians. The belly and thighs of bronze in chapter 2 and the leopard in chapter 7 are the Greeks. And the legs of iron and feet mixed with clay in chapter 2 and the terrible beast in chapter 7 represent the Roman Empire, both past and future. So we see the last three kingdoms represented here. And most of the emphasis is on the Grecian Empire. So we have the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and it touches upon the Romans as they are starting to come into power. So, verse 1, it says, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, to him I believe is Michael. Now, what happened in the first year of Darius? Well, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. There was a conspiracy to attack Daniel. Now, what happens when you attack Daniel? Well, you're attacking the Jews. Things weren't going well for the Jewish people. They were still in captivity. They had not been released or sent home yet. Things were looking really bad. But what God did when he saved Daniel was he changed the king's attitude towards the Jews, towards the God of the Jews, towards the God of Israel. And that resulted in them being sent home according to God's plan after 70 years. And this is really similar in theme to what happened four kings later in four Medo-Persian kings later, with Haman and Esther and Xerxes. 
and in Esther he is called Ahasuerus. And you read that in the book of Esther. So Satan has made many attempts to destroy the Jews, but God keeps thwarting Satan's plans and using them against him. So behind all these stories are angelic battles in the unseen realm, and we read about that in chapter 10. All right, verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So basically, at this point in Daniel's life, the Babylonians have been defeated by the Medes and Persians, and the Persians are in power. And the angel says, three kings are going to come in a row, and the fourth one shall be richer than the rest, and will stir up the entire kingdom against Greece. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened. The fourth king was Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. However you say his name, sorry about that. And he raised an army, some say, of two and a half million men. It took seven days to march the men across boats that act as a bridge from the landmass across the Aegean Sea into the region of Greece. Now, the battle was the bloodiest battle in history as the Greeks fought against Xerxes and his huge army. And although the Greeks lost, the army of Xerxes was decimated and they never really recovered. And the Greeks were really angry. And for the next 150 years, they wanted revenge. And they were angry with the Medes and Persians, their empire, looking to overthrow them. And then in verse 3, guess what happens? 150 years later, the Medes and Persians are getting weaker, the Greeks are getting stronger, and a mighty king arises, and he is Alexander the Great. He took all the anger and revenge that the Greeks were feeling and began to conquer. And by the time he was 33, he had conquered the entire known world, but he died in pneumonia shortly after that. So following his death, his son didn't take over the kingdom, but it was divided between four of his generals. And now, as the story unfolds, we're going to focus on two areas taken over by two of Alexander's generals. So we have the ones in the north, the Seleucids, and they were directly north of Israel. And the Ptolemies were in Egypt. So remember the Seleucids are north of Israel, and the Ptolemies are south of Israel in Egypt. Now, for a period of 130 years, these two kingdoms are battling it out. One defeats the other, or you know, the north will defeat the south, and the south will defeat the north, and there's battles and battles, and there's peace treaties and all kinds of stuff. And so basically God is writing all this down. But why? Because it affects Israel. And we're going to see that soon. Verses 5 and 6 in Daniel 11. Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So here we have a marriage agreement, and like Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter to make peace, that's the idea here. So rather than fight the northern Grecian kingdom there, Ptolemy proposed that they form an alliance. I have a daughter, he said to Antiochus in Syria. 
marry her and that will make us one big family like Alexander wanted us to be. That's a bit of tongue-in-cheek there. I can't, Antiochus replied. I'm married. Dump her, Ptolemy said. Antiochus agreed. <laughs> Their wedding took place, but soon after that, Ptolemy died and Antiochus decided he wanted his first wife back. So, she took him back, she returned to him, only to stab him in the back. She had him poisoned. And she also killed Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice, and their child as well, and thus fulfilling verses 5 and 6. He did not retain his authority. So that's exactly what happened. Right, verses 7 to 9. But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So, Ptolemy's son, Ptolemy III, Ptolemy III, he gathered an army, marched through Israel, and he defeated the northern Grecian kingdom. And while he was there, he rescued 2,500 gods the Syrians had stolen from the Egyptians years earlier, and thus fulfilling that prophecy. Also, in verse 8 it says, He shall continue more years than the king of the north. Well, history tells us that Ptolemy III lived four years past Seleucus II. So again, fulfilling that prophecy. And verse 9, Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south, but shall return to his own land. So the northern kingdom, Seleucus, they want to attack the Egyptians. Uh, several years after the Egyptian invasion, and they are able to mount an attack on Egypt in about 240 BC. But Seleucus was defeated completely and was forced to return to his own land. <laughs> and this was the beginning of a seesaw of wins and losses between the two warring Grecian kingdoms. And guess what? Whoever won the battle, they had control of the Holy Land. So if the king of the south won the battle, then Egypt controlled the Holy Land. If the king of the north won the battle, then they would control the Holy Land. And that led to the persecution of the people in Israel, which accumulated with Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's what we're going to get to in verses 21 to 35. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. So this is um, verse 10 now in Daniel 11. And assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So in response to the Egyptian invasion, Antiochus III, son of Seleucus II, launched a counterattack against Egypt and in the process claimed Israel as part of his empire. And so imagine living in Israel at this time. It would have been like living or being caught between two fighting dogs, you know, just hating each other and devouring one another and living in the middle of that. Not much fun at all. Verses 11 to 14. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him with the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up 
and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. So the king of the south should be moved with rage. And the angel told Daniel that the king of the south would attack and meet a great multitude of soldiers from the king of the north. The king of the north would lose in the battle and he would be defeated. Now, did this happen? Yes. It's called the Battle of Raphia. And that's right on the border of Israel and Egypt. And you've probably heard about that border crossing. It's in the same kind of area, I think. And because of the loss, he was forced to give back dominion over the Holy Land, the Glorious Land, to Ptolemy IV. So again, the seesaw thing. Verse 13. For the king of the north will return and muster a, a multitude greater than the former, and certainly shall come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfilment of the vision, but they shall fall. So back and forth the battle goes, and now it's centred in Israel. And Antiochus comes on the scene, determined to solve the problem once and for all, so he persuaded the Greeks to join him in invading Egypt once again, and also some of the people in Israel, who are sick of being ruled by the king of the south. Verse 15, So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound, and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land, that's Israel, with destruction in his power. So, the king of the north is going to get this massive army together and would come back and they would defeat the king of the south, but this time it's different. It's going to be an extended siege. And, guess what? They're going to retake control of the glorious land, the land of Israel. Verse 17. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, thus he shall do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. So <laughs> here's another power play. So the king of the north, as tensions begin to ease, and you know, it's a few years after the battle, Antiochus says to the house of Ptolemy, I've got a beautiful daughter, you've got a young son, and they're only about seven years old. I'll send my daughter down to you in Egypt. She'll hang out there. She'll wait for your son to grow up, and then they can be married. Now, what he was really after was to place his daughter inside the palace of the Ptolemies to act as a spy and to basically gain control. He wanted to gain control. You know, if he's got his woman in there, his daughter, then, you know, he can know what's going on and he can have influence. Now, this woman's name was Cleopatra. It's not the Cleopatra who would come a hundred years later, the more famous Cleopatra. But the problem was that Cleopatra actually fell in love with the son of Ptolemy and refused to spy or go along with her father. She sided with her southern husband and not her northern father. And again, thus fulfilling what it says, but she shall not stand with him or before him. So, so far, are you kind of... Going, wow, all these details, all these intrigues, all these things written in advance and yet fulfilled perfectly. So, verse 18. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and he shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. With the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Now, what this means is Antiochus, the northern ruler, 
turned his face towards the Greek islands, determined to conquer them. But at the time, guess who's in Greece? It's the Roman Empire. So he goes there and he gets defeated by the Roman Empire. And so he can't keep on increasing his kingdom. So then this northern king, in 19, then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So what happened in verse 19 there, this northern king, he comes back and he needs money because he just lost his battle and now he's under tribute to the Romans. And he goes to his own land and he wants to raid one of his own temples to get money to pay the Romans and the people don't like it and they kill him. Fulfilling, he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Verse 20, There shall arise in his place one who imposed taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or battle. So what happened there? Well, the new king had all this debt from the previous king's battles, and he said, so the next Antiochus in 187 BC, he says, I'm going to send a thousand tax collectors throughout the northern empire to tax the people. But someone slipped some poisonous mushrooms into his dinner and he died. Just as the Bible said that he wouldn't last long, okay, and not die in anger or in battle. He was betrayed. And all this sets the stage for the remainder of the chapter. So the year is now 175 BC, and out of these two groups of people, one individual from the north emerges, and his name is Antiochus Epiphanes, and we've already talked about him before. A very important person prophetically because he's a picture of foreshadowing of one who is even more vile, or more worse than he is, the Antichrist. Verse 21, And in his place shall arise a vile person, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus V, to whom they will not give the honour of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably, and seize the kingdom by intrigue or deceit. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him, and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. So the Prince of the Covenant is the High Priest. The Covenant represents Israel, and the High Priest was taken away. And we'll find out more about that in a minute. So in 175 BC, this Antiochus Epiphanes, a great public orator, remember he's a picture of the Antichrist, he appears on the scene, and using trickery and flattery, he seduces the people into accepting him as the king. And not only of Syria, but Israel as well. Because basically he's bought the high priest. He overthrew the legitimate high priest and put his own false priesthood in place. He actually had a war to do that. And we talked about him back in Daniel chapter 8, where he's referred to as the little horn coming out of the Mede and Persian Empire. So that's Daniel 8, 9 to 14 and 23 to 25. So he should come in peaceably. Apart from the murder of his older brother, Antiochus didn't use terror to gain power. He used flattery, smooth promises, and intrigue. In other words, deception. Now, the big picture, if you're talking about nations, why is the Holy Spirit giving us all this information about this guy? Well, he's not actually really important because at this time, Rome is becoming really strong. And just in a few years' time, Rome is going to take over that area. So he's not actually a really important king. He was on the throne from 175 to 164 BC. And the only reason he wasn't properly defeated by Rome is because he died um, just before. 
But he has a huge impact on Israel. So we're going to find out what he did in verse 23 and onwards. So verse 23, And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even to the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil and riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So he took over Edom, Moab, all of Palestine and into Syria. And he took over the fattest or richest real estate. He took the plunder and he shared it with his people. He didn't hoard it to himself like most kings did, but he shared it with them and got them on his side. That's how he did it. Verse 25 and 26, He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. For they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him, and his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. So, when he waged war with the Egyptians, the southern kingdom, Antiochus, renewed the old rivalry, but did it with treachery by tricking some of the servants of Ptolemy to turn against their king. So the king of the south was betrayed by his own people. And that's what it says in verse 26. Yet those who eat the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him, and his army shall be swept away. Exactly what happened. Verse 27, both of these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. So after this defeat, they come to the negotiating table, and they're trying to figure something out. But the Bible tells us that they're both lying to each other. (laughs) It sounds like modern-day negotiations, the so-called reduction in violence negotiation technique they're using now in Afghanistan and uh, and with Gaza and that. So while returning to his own land with great riches, his heart will be moved against the most holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So they come to the table, the negotiating table, and they're lying to each other, and history tells us that neither side kept their agreements. And on the way back, Antiochus, returning from Egypt, starts to reveal his hatred against the people of Israel and his covetousness in relation to the wealth of the temple. Remember the temple had a lot of gold in it and he's going to later rob the temple. Uh, Verse 29, at the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south but it shall not be like the former or the latter for ships from Cyprus, those are the Roman ships, shall come against him therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return, show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. So years passed and Antiochus decided to make another military venture into Egypt, the southern Grecian kingdom, about 168 BC. But the ships, the Roman ships, were there and they stopped Antiochus from advancing. He was met near Alexander by a Roman consul, Gaius Papillus Laenus, who demanded that he leave Egypt or be attacked by Rome. The story goes that the Roman consul drew a line or drew a circle around Antiochus and told him that his decision had been reached before he stepped out of the circle. (laughs) So rather than risk a war with Rome, Antiochus, although greatly displeased, he withdrew from Egypt 
immediately and conceded Egypt to Roman power. So the Roman Empire is increasing. He goes, well, I can't touch that now. That's that belongs to the Romans. But he's really angry. He's really, really angry. He's fuming. So verse 31, And the forces shall be mustered by him, this Antiochus. And on the way back to his northern land, he goes through Jerusalem. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So he's really angry, and in his frustration and anger, Antiochus headed north, right into Jerusalem, where he vented his anger on the Jews. Now, story goes, upon his arrival, 40,000 were killed. By the time his anger was fully vented, 100,000 had been slaughtered. And then came the abomination of desolation when he went into the temple, killed a pig on the altar, smeared the blood on the walls of the temple, and demanded that the remainder be drunk by the Jewish priests. Then he erected either, I'm not sure, a statue of Zeus or himself, and demanded that it be worshipped. A sickening scene. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus the Shining One, like a title for deity. But (laughs) the Jews, they called him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the Madman. Because this guy was just like Caesar Nero and Hitler. He's one of the most insane rulers in history. Verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So at this point, 170 BC, the Jews were devastated by the Holocaust of Antiochus. Yet there was one family who decided to stand up to the madman. You know who that is? A man named Judah and his brothers, known as the Maccabees. They launched a guerrilla war against Antiochus that lasted until 165 BC, when they overthrew Antiochus and threw him and his army out of Jerusalem. And we studied this more in Daniel chapter 8. And we saw that the prophecy of 2,300 days was fulfilled until the worship would be restored. Verse 33, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. So for many days, this persecution of the Jews is going to go on and on and on. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue, and some of those of understanding shall fall, to refine them, to purify them, and to make them white, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So now it takes us to the time of the end, and that's where 36 comes in. It's time of the end, and we're not going to go there today. That's another message. So what I want to do is just finish off. So verses 2 through 34 chronicle 375 consecutive years of Jewish history. So verse 35, leapfrogs over centuries, millennia actually. Why? Because the first 34 verses are a part of Daniel's 69 weeks. The first part of the time allocated to Israel prophetically. And verse 36 onwards speaks of Daniel's 70th week which is still future. So in between verses 34 and 36 is the church age. So when the church age is over, when the believers are raptured, Daniel's 70th week, the time of the tribulation, starts. 
And that's why Daniel jumps from Antiochus Epiphanes to the end times. So Antiochus Epiphanes was part of the first 69 weeks. And next week in verses 36 to 45 we go to the 70th week. Where the one who is even more vile than him comes on the scene. And we know him as the Antichrist. So as an application for us to finish with, I want to go back to verse 32. It says, Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong. So this is talking about the Israelites, the Jews, the people of Israel. So when Antiochus Epiphanes turned on Jerusalem, the Jewish people were divided. Some forsook their covenant with God and embraced the Greek culture. But those who knew their God made a stand for righteousness in the face of incredible persecution. I've got a quote from John F. Valvord. Some of the Jews succumbed to the flattery of the king and defected from their fellow Jews as they revolted against Antiochus. It was a time of purging and separation of the true from the false, of those who were courageous from those who are faint-hearted. In the end times, the same thing's going to happen. There's going to be those who will go along with the Antichrist, with this man who, who seems so appealing and so powerful. But there's going to be those who say, no, I'm going to stick with my God. And there's going to be a division. There's going to be a purification. Think about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. How did they come to the place where they confessed their allegiance to him. It was through the death of Jesus. So Satan tries to destroy Jesus, and what does it do? The persecution actually causes them to confess their allegiance to Jesus, to put their trust in him, to stand for him. So Antiochus is trying to annihilate the Jews who are devoted to God, but all he's doing is contributing to their purification to their growth in faith. Now this is why I think persecution is needed in the church. False converts, the lukewarmers, the backsliders, we'll all have to make a choice. Suffer with the faithful or run with the wicked. Comfort leads to complacency. We need to be careful we don't get too comfortable. And a final exhortation from John Corson, no matter how big the enemy might be, how dark the day might seem, how large the battle might loom, the people that truly know their God will be strong and do exploits because they realize that if God is for them, who can be against them? Romans 8.31 The gutsiest people in the world are believers who know their God, who don't back down or give up in the face of challenge, but who simply say, I know the Lord is with me, and no matter how dark the day might be, I'm going to continue doing what he's called me to do, even if it costs me my life. And that's why we study the Word, so that we might know God and do great exploits for Him. So Father, I just thank you, Lord, for this passage. Lord, it's in some ways irrelevant for us, you know, what went on all those years ago. But you wrote down what was going to happen, and it all happened. Exactly how you said it would happen. And Lord, we just stand amazed. We're not really amazed because we know that you know the future. And it's like, well, if you're really God, if you really know everything, you, you should know that. And so we are comforted knowing that you're in control 
that you, our God, you really do know everything, that you really are in control. You know the future, you control the future, you plan the future, and we want to be ready to follow you no matter what happens, Lord. If times get tough, Lord, help us to be willing to make the sacrifice, even in the face of incredible persecution. And yes, some of us will die and will be refined. But Lord, some of us will continue to do great exploits for you, to do many things in your kingdom, to bring many people into your kingdom. So help us, Father, to be brave. Help us, Father, to put you first. And Lord, help us to be prepared by making you our first priority, by making you our first love. So when these hard times come, we're not going to fall over. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.